Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. Fred, glad to be here with you, opening up the word. It's an incredible privilege and honor, not just for me, but I think for us to get to open up the word of the Lord. It's a good day when we get to do that. Amen? Amen. Have you ever had one of those weeks? I'm talking about one of those weeks. I actually think I said that when I did the announcements a couple of weeks ago. I was having one of those weeks. It was a couple of days before my wife and I's first anniversary. Uh, she put up with me. So, yeah, it's exciting. Um, Tuesday, our anniversary was Sunday. Tuesday, huge fight because that's just the way we do it, right? Um, yeah, one of those weeks, right? The next day, 24 hours later, uh, I get to work. If you don't know, I'm a police officer with the city of Chula Vista, and um, I work the graveyard shift. We get there, and no roll call tonight. There's a critical incident. Get out. Let's go. Hey, babe, sorry about the fight. Uh, love you. I'll see you tomorrow. Let's go. As, she's texting, as I'm texting her that, she's texting me some pretty heartbreaking news about immediate family. The kind of news where you're like, do we need to fly out tomorrow morning? The fight doesn't really matter that much anymore. 24 hours later, uh, something that ended up making national news. I was uh, Broadway in Palomar when I got the beep on my computer and my radio. The... Uh, homicide of a police officer in San Diego happened 24 hours after those text messages. Drive 135 miles on the freeway, get there, grab your helmet, grab your AR, and go find the bad guy. Oh, and by the way, Kate, love you. See you tomorrow. I think. I hope. I pray. Have you ever had one of those weeks where you get home and you're just like tapping out? I'm done. You got it. Let's decompress. Let's get on Facebook. And then you, yeah, yeah. You got Hillary. You got Donald. You got people that don't like what I do. You've got people that really like what I do. And now we're going at it. So much for decompressing. Frustrating. Amen. I've talked to some of you this month. It's been a, it's been a bad month. It's been a bad couple of months for some of us. How do we deal with that frustration? How do we deal with the fact that sometimes I just don't want to get up? Sometimes I just don't want to talk to anybody, and sometimes I don't want to go to work. I just want to, I just want to not do anything. Can Jesus come back or what? God knew what, I was, what he was doing when he gave me this passage because I get to see, and you and I get to see together, Paul be really frustrated kind of angry, kind of done. And he's loving, and he's gracious, and he points them back to Jesus, the Galatian church. You can turn in your Bible to page 1169, Galatians chapter 3. It's where we'll be this morning. We see Paul realizing that the Galatian church is frustrated. They're just done. They came to know Jesus by Paul's ministry, and a couple years later, teachers are showing up saying, if you want to 
believe in Jesus, you must behave like Jesus. you got to be radical like Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. You must be Jewish in belief, in behavior, in culture. you got to do these things. See, Paul, man, he's wacky. He just thinks Jesus on the cross is enough for you. That's not enough for you. Because they have questions like I had questions on Tuesday night. Um, I thought I was a more loving person than that. I said things I shouldn't have said. I thought things I should not have thought. I'm preaching in a couple of weeks. How come I can't get better? How come I can't get better at being patient and kind and gentle to someone that's been so kind and patient and gentle to me, my wife? Why am I not getting better? Why do people, why do people hate me when I put on my uniform? Why is life so frustrating? And Paul knows that that's what the Galatian church is feeling, frustration. I can't get better. The world is not getting better, and I need some answers. And they're going to whatever they can find, and they're forgetting Jesus. They're forgetting the faith that they once had. So Paul shows up and says, hold up. You got questions? I've got good news. We need good news this morning, amen? I need good news after some weeks. I need good news after some days of work. I do. Let's look at that good news this morning. He starts in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 of Galatians, 1169, the first Part of your notes is good news, God died. Verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. How is that good news when you're frustrated? Well, for one, C.S. Lewis said, we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. When I'm at home and I get angry at my wife, it's not because I don't know I should be kind. It's not because I don't know that I should be gentle. It's not that I don't know that I should be patient. It's I don't care. In that moment, I don't care. And C.S. Lewis says rightly, you need to be reminded more of what you already know. So Paul starts. When you get frustrated, when you don't know where to go, remember this. God died for you. Why is that good news? Because Jesus is Lord, he's big, he's mighty, and he's Christ. He's merciful, he's kind, he's good. God actually cares about our problems. Do you know that? Do we believe that? Do we remember that? God saw what good of a world he made, what an incredible people and world and creation he made and we mess it up. I think God knows frustration. I think God knows what it feels like to go, what are you doing? What's going on? And God cared enough to die. God cared enough to do something about it. My impatience, he did something about it. My lack of kindness, he did something about it. Everything that's wrong in the world, God cared. Instead of putting God died, let's do that. Don't scratch it out. Slash it and say God cared. Amen? That's good news. 
Because no other religion teaches us that. Every other religion says, listen, figure it out. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's a code of rules. Here's a way to do it. Pray this way. Figure it out. And maybe God will care. If you're good enough. We're backwards. We say God cared. Now what do you get to do with that? That's good news, Paseo. That's good news that God cares about what's wrong in our world. Ultimately, the good news is not a baby in a manger, though that's cute, or good messages by Jesus. That's awesome. I love the Beatitudes. And in some ways, we love the empty tomb, and that gives us hope, but we need to have God dying on the cross before we have an empty tomb. This is the bedrock. When I text my wife and I don't know when I see her next, that's the bedrock. That he died for me. That he was crucified. That that's what I know. But he says, you're foolish. Welcome. And you've been, you've been bewitched. What does that mean? We've gone sideways. There's a demonic undertone there in the bewitching. Satan's taken us off track. The last thing we remember when we're really angry is God died for me. Because we don't do that. Because we don't act that way. Because when things go sideways, this is the very first thing we forget. But the thing we need the most, we often leave behind always. He says, you're foolish. That doesn't sound very caring, very compassionate. But it is. Because he wants to shock them into remembering that Jesus is enough for the moments that you're frustrated. That Jesus is the best way and the only way you can go where your frustrations actually get met with good news, with an answer. Do you believe that this morning? Let's continue. Paul does. He says, good news. God already gave you what you need. That's the second thing. Verse 2, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? This is a, a parent's question. He has a parent heart here. He goes, let me ask you one thing, and then he asks six. All right? How many of you, right? I got one thing to say. One, two, three, four, five, six. You're like, oh, gosh. He goes dad mode. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? One, are you so foolish? Two, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you not trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, he gets to his one question. Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Or by believing what you heard. Interestingly enough, Paul says, you know, your problem, your issue, isn't, it isn't that you're like terrible people. He writes letters to churches that are terrible people. Corinthians, read that. That's gross. You need gloves to read Corinthians. You're like, oh my, I can't believe, I wouldn't even do that. I, I, you don't even see that on TV. That's not their problem. 
Their problem, Paul says, that the source of your frustration is actually really interesting. It's that you want to be a good person. The source of your frustration is that you have gotten Jesus and now you're moving forward with your life. That Jesus gave you a start, maybe he gave you eternal life, but you give, get to give yourself a good life. He says, that is the source of your frustration. We all know the story of the prodigal son, right? Uh, if you don't know it, there's two sons, there's a dad. The youngest son says, I'm out. Spends all his money on prostitutes, on gambling, on pay-per-view, and realizes he finishes all his cash. He goes on Amazon Prime a lot. He finishes all his cash, and he goes, ah, oh, dang it. Um, yeah, I really like my dad now. And he goes back, and what does the dad do? The dad's gracious, right? The dad takes him back. It's one of the most famous stories of Jesus' life. I want to know what happened on Tuesday when the dad asked him to go out into the field. But I don't want to go out into the field. Don't you, you threw a party for me. Yeah, you're my son. Guess what? Get to work. No. Dad, get to work. Fine. A couple weeks later, keep working. I wonder, does he ever get that thought in his head? Maybe I shouldn't have come back. We all know the Samaritan woman, right? It's one, another one of Jesus' famous stories. She's had five husbands. She's living with her boyfriend. Jesus says, don't, because I love you. And she goes, oh, my gosh, yes, he does. She goes, we don't know what happened. Getting real for a second, what if she gets lonely one night and she gets a text message or a Facebook message from one of the guys that she used to hang out with back in the day? And she's really lonely. I wonder, does she get that thought in the back of her head? Maybe Jesus isn't worth it. Paul's saying, listen, you started off great, but you're kind of you're drifting. That's the heart of the issue. That's the frustration. Because what if I'm not getting better and I'm trying really hard? What if the son is really trying hard to love his dad, and he just keeps getting annoyed by his dad. What if that Samaritan woman is trying really hard to be faithful, and she just can't seem to get life together? Jesus didn't make my life that much easier. Is he really worth it? Paul says, what do you need to do? You need to remember. You need to remember the relationship between the sinner and the Savior is what's unique about Christianity. Everybody's got the Ten Commandments, and I'm sorry, we don't have the copyright on morality. No matter what rightwingnews.com tells you, we don't have the copyright on being good people. You ever had a Mormon neighbor? They're really kind. You ever had a Jewish friend? You ever not believe in Jesus? How many of you came to faith as an adult? And you're like, I wasn't that bad of a person before. It's not like I was out, you know, like committing a bunch of crimes. I was a decent person before I met Jesus. The, the heart of the issue is you need to remember that what's unique about our faith is not that we get better. 
It's that God loves us throughout the entire process. That's what's so unique, and that's what's so exciting, and that's, to be honest with you, what lets you go to bed at night and get a good night's sleep. I was not a good husband today, and Jesus is still with me. You know what I can do the next morning? Get up and try again. It allows me to have long-lasting faith and to be able to say, you know what, I didn't do today what I should have done, but Jesus is still with me tomorrow, and I can keep on going. And Paul is going to give us two camps. He's going to do two case studies this morning. Okay, um, Paul Tripp, he's a theologian. He says, if what God calls us to reach is able to be done by human effort, there's no need for the cross. If what we can do for a better life can be done without Jesus, if what we do can be done without Jesus, we didn't need God to come die for us, we didn't need Christmas, and we don't need Easter. And so he's going to give us a case study um, in the next couple of verses that are going to put two things together. They're going to say religious works are going to be here. I'm going to be moving around. Religious works are here, and faith is here. And he's going to say that they're antithetical. He's going to say that us getting better and us trying harder is different than relying on Jesus. Let's continue. Verse 6. He says, let me prove it to you. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The Galatian church had had teachers come alongside them after Paul had left to go plant other churches and said, if you want to believe in Jesus, you must behave like Jesus. Jesus was Jewish, so let us teach you how to be a good Jewish person. It actually is a pretty logical argument, right? What would Jesus do? He'd be a perfect Jewish boy. He'd be a perfect Jewish man. So what should you do? Be a perfect Jewish boy. Be a perfect Jewish man. Jesus gives you the spirituality to be centered, to be balanced. And Paul says, all right, you want to talk theology? Let's talk theology. Paul is an incredibly brilliant man, a studied religious student. But he says, you often go to the law, Moses, that's found in Exodus, second book of the Bible, right? He says, no, don't cheat. You want to play? Let's play. I love it. Well, let's go to the first book of the Bible. You want to talk theology? Let's go. But go to the first book of the Bible. Go to Father Abraham. He had many sons, right? He's the father of our faith. Paul says, you want to argue Old Testament? Let's go. But go back to the very beginning. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Go back to the very first pages of your Bible. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to or if you don't, we don't have the time to go there. But it's Genesis 12 through 
about chapter 22. We did an entire sermon series on the life of Abraham. And what we find with Abraham, if you don't know who he is, is he was an incredibly powerful and rich man, even without God. He had quite a bit with him, but God calls him and he answers. This moon worshiper turns from a false god to the true God and starts walking with God. And in chapter 15, um, if we can go to that, we'll go to his timeline. Uh, We'll go to Abraham's timeline. Genesis 15, God promises to Abraham, go out, they're camping, and they go out into the stars. He says, you see all these stars? You're going to have more descendants than that. And he goes, well, Abraham goes, well, there's an issue. I'm not in the baby-making age, and neither is my wife. But Galatians chapter six, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's a human improbability that the promise of God is true. But with God, all things are possible. So he says, I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know where, I don't know how, and I don't know why, but I'm going to go. And the beautiful thing about Abraham is that he's not always the best husband. And he's not always the best dad. And he's not always the best follower of God. But he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you have faith in Jesus on the cross for you, God treats you like he treated Abraham. That's Paul's point. If you believe in Jesus on the cross for you, you can believe like Abraham believed. I don't know how I'm going to get better. And if I look at myself, there's a huge improbability that I will get better. I don't know where. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I will get better. There will be one day I will not be impatient. There is a one day I will be kind. There is one day coming where I will be gentle. And I can have faith and I can have hope like Abraham did. But see, the teachers in Galatia were saying, if you want to have the faith of Abraham, you need to behave like Abraham. The big issue in this letter is circumcision. We won't get into it. Somebody else has the pleasure of teaching on circumcision. Um, I will not touch on that. But they're saying, you must live like Abraham. You must behave like Abraham. And Paul says, no, you need to believe like Abraham. Because of this beautiful truth. Look at Genesis 17. Abraham displays faith. And only in Genesis chapter 22 does Abraham act out in faith by being willing to sacrifice his son. What comes first? God's call. What comes second? God's promise. Then you worry about your display of faith and your acts of faith. Paseo, so many times we get frustrated because we're acting in faith. We're displaying our faith, hoping maybe God will promise us something. Maybe God will do something for us now. But this is the way God has acted since the beginning pages of your Bible. 
He initiates. He's given you what you need to get better. He's given you enough for the frustrations in your heart and in your life to get taken care of and to get worked out before you even got started. There are things inside of me and there's things inside of you that we need to get better at, that we need to work on. Some things we don't even know. And God's already at work. God was at work in Abraham before Abraham ever began working. I don't know, maybe I'm just the only one, but that's really comforting good news. I'm not by myself. He continues. I love it. Good news. That was faith, right? Abraham was the case study of faith. He goes, well, let's look at the case study of works, of effort. Good news. God's not a good effort God. God isn't a good effort God. Verse uh, verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. As it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says that the person who does these things will live by them. You have one option, faith. You have a second option, works, conditionality. If you do, then you deserve. There's no such thing as a free lunch, amen? Okay. You're under a curse. Because at the end of the day, you ain't that good. If it's up to you, you're done. That's Paul's point. If you're banking on yourself to get you there, you ain't going to get there. You're not. He begins by talking about the law. Um, I was a pre-law major in college, and now I get to work law enforcement. Uh, One of the cool things, interesting things about the law is that the law tells us what's right and what's wrong. It, right, it governs our society. But law also reflects character. Uh, go to Arizona. Uh, Kate and I went to Arizona. My wife and I went to Arizona last week, and it's an open carry state. It's a little different than California. <laughs> Amen? Um, I hear Washington doesn't just smoke cigarettes. Right? They smoke a little something else, too. How is that different? What, why do we have different laws? Well, law also reflects culture. We don't, law just doesn't just tell us what we want to be right and wrong. It also tells us how we want to live our life. And so when the law of man is created, it tells us this is right and this is wrong. But it also tells you a little something about that culture. The law of God is very similar. The law of God has commands, right and wrong, but the law of God also reflects the maker of the law, God himself. That's huge to get, that the law of God isn't just right and wrong, but the character of God, perfect, good, kind, gentle, righteous. That's good news if you're all those things. It's not good news if you're any of those things Not all the time. And so Paul says, when we're talking about the law of God, 
It's not just what God wants, it's who God is. Which is not really that good of good news because of the next thing. And we're going to talk about this. I want to give you four things about the law, just real quick. The first is that the law is conditional. The law of God is conditional. If you do everything, you live. If, then. Much in the same way, there is a inverse. If you don't, you're under a curse. Secondly, the law of God is uh, measures, is a measurable standard. Um, I try not to step on the weight scale too much because I get depressed, but when I do, it gives me a weight. Amen? You step on the scale and it gives you a weight. It doesn't say, I'm not going to tell you, it doesn't say what my weight is minus the burrito. If you're trying to bulk up, it doesn't say, well, you didn't have your protein shake. If you had your protein shake, you would be a pound more. It just tells it how it is. Either you are or you're not. You're 150, you're 150. Whether you were trying to get to 150 or come down to 150, the weight doesn't care. Amen? The law of God doesn't say, well, you tried to be nice. Well, you tried not to lust, but I mean, she was just right there. The law of God says either you did or you didn't. Either you are or you're not. And that's because the law of God is inflexible. If it reflects God, it is perfect. And Jesus in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew says, Be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's good news, right? No, because I'm not perfect. But if the law of God reflects God, then the law of God is perfect. It is unmovable. We can't get around it no matter how many things we vote for or vote against. The law of God stands. And the law of God is universal. You say, well, I'm not a Christian or I believe in good effort, so, you know, whatever. In the last year of marriage, and by the way, Kate's not here. I'm going to say the same story, second service. I'm not, you know... I'm not getting my therapy out right now. It's, uh, Kate knows these things. In the last year, I've learned a lot about cleaning. Um, my parents are saying amen. I don't know. I, it's their, hey, it's their fault. I wasn't, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the law is universal. Ladies, lazy Saturday. So you've only been cleaning like half of the day. Um, and your in-laws showed up unannounced. And the laundry is everywhere. You think you've got two out of the three kids in the house. Most of the dogs and the pets are accounted for. You think you'll eat at some point. Hey, how you doing? That feeling in the pit of your stomach. Gentlemen, father-in-law shows up and says, oh, that's the screen door you haven't fixed since the last time I was out from Ohio. Uh, I'm busy. A teenager with body issues, the, the lady who just had a baby and is trying to, am I going to be a stay-at-home mom or am I going to be a career woman? And what are people going to say? That feeling in the pit of your stomach when you know you're not who you should be, that's the law. Telling you you're not who you are supposed to be. Gentlemen, you're out in public at a nice dinner. I'm bragging on myself a lot today. Welcome to my life. And you snap in public, 
And you think people heard? And you kind of just want to be like, let's go to McDonald's. At least they don't judge there. Like, I'm, I'm going home, please. For those of you that have kids, your kids act like monkeys and Starbucks is their zoo. And they're hanging on the chairs. And everybody's looking at not them but you. That feeling in the pit of your stomach that you're not who you're supposed to be. It's the law of God. It's the law that you are not meeting the standard. As a parent, as a husband, as a grown member of society, <laughs> that you're not meeting the standard. I read on a sign that life is the art of drawing without an eraser. I really hope not. I really hope not. How many of us treat others like their life is drawn without an eraser? Or we treat ourselves. So we start thinking, if I stay out of trouble, if I get the grades, if I have more free time, if I didn't work graveyards, if I didn't try this or if I tried that, then I would. We love the law. We love conditionality. Three things and you can be a good husband. Why do I like that? Because if I do, if I do those things perfectly, then I can finally be a good husband. Five ways so your kids don't go insane at Starbucks. Let's post that article. Because if we can do these things perfectly, then we will finally be the parents we're supposed to be. We love conditionality. It makes it manageable. Uh, Ralph Erksine, he wrote a hymn. And he, in this hymn, he says, The law could promise life to me if my obedience perfect be. I like rules as long as I can keep them. So why the law? Why did God give us this if it is so bad? and so damning, and so condemning. Because if you think you can do it, you'll never ask for outside help. And that's why it's good news that God isn't a good effort God. God doesn't want your best effort. God doesn't want you to try hard. God doesn't want you to get your life together or get your act together. He doesn't think that that shake will finally get you to where you need to be. Or that workout, or that guy, or that job or that vacation. He wants you to know that none of those things will take you where you want to go. Only Jesus will. You're like, you talk about Jesus a lot. I'm a one-song ba uh, one band. Jesus, that's it. No one can live under the perfection of the law. And I have a perfect case study for that. Um, I love case studies because they bring it to light in, in a way which we maybe were not able to explain it. Uh, my wife is a Buckeye. She's from The Ohio State University. I hated the Buckeyes in high school and college. I love the Buckeyes. I don't know what happened. Um, she's willing to live with you. You root for her college team. It's a good deal. Um, the head coach there is Urban Meyer. And uh, Urban Meyer was not always at Ohio State. If you know any of his story, he was a head coach at Utah, very successful. And he coached the fourth member of the Trinity, Tim Tebow, uh, in Florida. And people laughing know football. People not laughing are like, he's a heretic. Um, God isn't a good effort. God, back to, back to Jesus. Get back to, come on. Come on. Okay. 
Urban Meyer, is a, he was a pretty good baseball player himself. Um, he got drafted into the major leagues. But he was a smart guy, too. Not saying the guys that get drafted in the major leagues aren't smart, but he was really smart. And he goes, wait a second, I'm not going to make it to the pros. Or, well, minor league. If you're from San Diego, the Padres. Minor leagues. Um, well, Gary's gone, and Derek likes the Giants, okay? So I'm, we're good. All right, come on. Urban Meyer's in the main, minor leagues, and he goes, you know what? I'm not going to make it. I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to be a coach. Sounds like a good idea now. At that point, he wrote his dad and said, Dad, I'm coming home. So throw a party. And dad said, if you quit, don't come home. Write your mom at Christmas, and if you can, use her last name. He hung that letter up on his desk at his offices for the rest of his career. And he told himself he would never quit. And a journalist that wrote an article about him said that he was like a man killing himself to get to a finish line that didn't exist. He became extremely successful until one day he lost. And a couple hours later, they found him in his office on the ground, unable to move, unable to speak, barely able to breathe. They thought he had a heart attack. When they took him to the hospital, they realized nothing's wrong with him. There was a lot wrong with him. He ended up quitting. The law of God is like that, Paseo. It wants to come into your heart and beat you. Martin Luther would call it the Hercules of faith that it would come and kill your self-righteousness. So you get down on the ground, you are not unable to move, you're unable to speak, and you go, I think I need you. I think I need you. The law of God drives us to Jesus. No one can live under perfection forever. You got those two camps, you got those two choices. But we got one last bit of good news. Good news. God made our failures his problem. So relax. I want to walk out this morning feeling better than I did when I walked in. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You're redeemed. You're not what you used to be. By becoming a curse for us. That's unheard of in the religious world. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith, not them, we, you included, might receive the promise of the Spirit. Redemption is a word that has the connotation of bringing back to its original state. Redemption is buying something back with a price, clearing a debt. God took the thing that you hate about yourself the most and took care of it. God will take the things that frustrate us about the world so much and take care of them. I've been hating death a lot the last couple of weeks. God's going to take care of it. I have a graph for you to better explain this. 
Jesus, he's the one wearing the crown, if you couldn't tell. Jesus wearing a crown, he's righteous. You, you're unrighteous. Everything of you gets thrown on Jesus. And everything of Jesus gets lavished on you. It's the great exchange. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might have the righteousness of God. All my badness for all his goodness. My sin, his righteousness. My mistakes, his mercy. My folly, his favor. My failures, his future. That's good news. That I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but I will be one day. I was hand, holding hands with Kate one day, and she looks at me and she goes, we're talking about this, she goes, she, she, she struggles with anxiety and panic attacks and, and things of that nature and fear and worry a lot. She goes, I, I can't wait not to be anxious. I go, I, I can't wait for you not to be anxious either. For a lot of reasons. But you know what? I'm gonna, there's no marriage in heaven, but I can't wait to see Kate in heaven and see her smiling, carefree, worry-free, and go, that's Jesus. The things that hurt her so badly, she is free of so wonderfully. Everything that's bad of me goes to Jesus. Everything that's good of his comes back to me. The law of God doesn't have to be the end of the road. Urban Meyer quit football. He said, I'm done. And some of you have quit God, and some of you have quit religion, and some of you have quit trying. Because <laughs> I don't want to die. That's one of the main objections to Christianity. I don't want that. I don't want the stress. I don't want the anxiety of, am I good enough? He said, I'm not coaching anymore. I'm done. I've made some good cash. I'm going to enjoy my family. The Ohio State, the Ohio State, comes and says, we want you to coach us. Nope. What would it take for you to come back into the game? Jesus is telling you, what would it come back? What would it take for you to come back in his arms? And Urban Meyer said, well, uh, i got to talk to my family about it. And family said, you can go back, but here's your new law. Here's your new rules. You're home by 6. You can only get calls until 8. You have to be home for these holidays, and you can't work these many hours. And Urban Meyer said, there's no way a coach of that caliber will be able to do that. They're going to expect way more. Look at who they are. But I'll give it a shot. Here's my conditions. And they said, you got it. Be our coach. What has he done? Nothing but win. National championships, conference games. He's at the top of his game now. And he's happy. Because before, he was afraid of coming home without a trophy and getting judged, condemned by his dad. Now, he knows his family just wants him to come home. So, Jesus has enough crowns. He's got enough trophies. He just wants you to come home. He's... Relaxed, he's stress-free, and he's winning. Some people think too much grace, that means I won't get to do 
or I won't get better, that I won't care. Paul says, no, too much grace is what will finally allow you to finally care. To finally say, all right, I, I believe you, you're good. Paseo, go home to Jesus. He wants you, trophy or not. That's good news, amen? Let me pray. Father God, thank you that you haven't given up on me. Thank you that I don't have to be what I've always been. Thank you that if it was up to me, I'd be dead. But because of you, I'm alive. I pray that for my friends. We pray that for our enemies. That Jesus, your grace, cover us all. We pray this in your name. Amen.